Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warrior, welcome back. And as we round out and wrap up this 2022, for those who celebrate, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to the rest of you. It's December. It's getting cold. The days are shorter. Hope that you're curled up with a nice warm cup of coffee. Maybe you're out warming up on a run. However, you are enjoying this podcast. I just want to say thank you for taking the time. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention to all of you. Thanks for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That is, of course, your time. Today's entrepreneur has become a dear friend. She's a fellow returned Peace Corps volunteer. And in the time since we recorded this episode, she has become the chief executive officer for New Sun Road. When we recorded, she wasn't new, but she was in a new role as chief commercial officer. And she sure loves to take the helm and take control. In organizations where she's given leadership, she often will rise to the top and take on the highest challenge. Now, Chief Executive Officer of New Sun Road, Adrian Pierce is helping that company chart new waters and providing remote monitoring and controls for microgrids around the world and for doing many magical things in the area of remote monitoring and control, as you'll see in this conversation. Adrian has worked with companies like Iron Ridge, Sun Edison, and others in her growth towards leading New Sun Road. And her entrepreneur journey is one that I really enjoy unpacking in today's conversation. In particular, we really unpack what it looks like to be the product or marketing manager for a company like Iron Ridge, one that is very well known in the sector for racking. The importance of timing for any technology evolution and product market fit and how young founders like those who started New Sun Road can learn to hand over the reins, lean on their own core skills and bring people like Adrian around them to help grow their venture. If this sounds interesting and you are new here, I hope you'll subscribe to the show as well. I hope you'll listen all the way through this episode and we will get a chance to earn your raving review and your venture back here for the next episode. We do publish twice a week. And if you just tick on that subscribe button, however it is offered in the platform of choice for you, it'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can also check out our more than 550 additional clean energy founder stories, startup advice from the front lines of the clean energy revolution. We've got it all cataloged over at mysuncast.com. For now, Get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. A lot of folks have heard the term microgrid in the context of this energy transition, and they might get confused about how somehow the idea of a microgrid is now a thing that's been introduced because we have re- renewables or because... We have this new lower cost technology or batteries are finally making sense. So now microgrids make sense. Today, we're going to unpack a bit about the background of a real climate champion, a solar warrior that I have been really privileged to get to know recently. Thanks to a mutual friend, in particular, all of our return Peace Corps volunteer friends who connected us. But Kristen Kirsch, our buddy over at Next Tracker, shout out to you for helping make the connection to Adrian Pierce. Adrian, it's been a long time coming, but I'm glad to have you on the show. We're going to talk about a lot of interesting things. Welcome to Suncast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Adrian, you uh, have had a long tenure now living in California as I, I had a more than a decade of time in California. I know that hindsight's twenty twenty, um, but as you reflect on your time growing up out in the outskirts of Boston, 
which is a decidedly different environment. Do you remember a point or perspective from early childhood or maybe um, early adolescence where it really started to dawn on you that there was a desire in you to do something that not only meant more for the community around you, but also for our environment or, our, or the earth generally? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I can't say that there's a, a, a single moment, but it just always made common sense. You know, you throw something away, where does it go? How do you take mm -hmm. care of the environment? And when I was in eighth grade, there was a science fair and this was many decades ago. So in order to prepare for that, I was slipping through my dad's popular mechanics magazines and pulling out articles of interest. And what captured my attention was some of the early articles on solar energy, uh, eutectic salts for thermal transition. And I built what I called an independent energy house out of paper mache cardboard and cellophane tape for the, for the windows. It was embedded in a hill that was covered with green shag carpet. That's so good. Where'd you get the shag carpet? Did you cut it up? It was a remnant from the family room. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. <wow>. Love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Somebody out there is, is Google searching, what is shag carpet? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, you know, and the science fair had, you know, tables and everybody was around and I ended up winning second prize, which was fantastic. But first prize went to a bread mold experiment. I'm not quite sure why scientifically that was better, but that was what the energy. Uh, the energy conversation does tend to get second place to narratives we don't quite understand, right? Absolutely. I even had a little windmill on top of my hill. I mean, it was all there. So yeah, so sustainability, trying not to pollute and put things into the air and take your responsibility. I mean, we're taught early on, we're supposed to clean up our messes when we make them. Why that doesn't extend beyond sort of our bedroom has always been a little bit of a mystery to me. That's really profound. Uh, I can say nobody's ever said that on the show before and it resonates so deeply. Gosh, that hits. We're taught early on to clean up our messes. Yeah. And right now we're, we're not cleaning up our messes and we're trying and we're dealing with the consequences of not only our messes, but the messes of the generations before us. You and I, as I've alluded to a few moments ago, share a common bond. I have never met a returned Peace Corps volunteer who did not feel in some way bonded as an RPCV to other Peace Corps volunteers. And I always like to ask, did you imagine at some point in your youth that you would travel and uh, do volunteer work? Was that a part of your career trajectory? And if not, how did the Peace Corps become a piece of your narrative? No, it was definitely not. I wish I could say I had a five-year plan or a 10-year plan or a vision board that I was always pulling from, but that doesn't seem to be the case. My affinity for science, I went and got an engineering degree. And as a chemical engineer, the choices at the time were to go into pharmaceuticals or go into the petrochemical industry. Mm -hmm. New Jersey nor Texas seemed particularly attractive. And I, you know, I love to travel and have an intense curiosity and thought I would go and offer my services to change the world. I think a lot of Peace Corps volunteers start there and then they mm -hmm. realize once they're in the middle of the service, there's a lot more changing that goes on within them than uh, the actual impact that they have on the world. We should do a whole Peace Corps panel with our friends that are in renewables. That's a man. <laughs> That would be fun. That would be fun. It would be fun. I'm Tom Cheney, you, me, Kristen. I could think of, we have a, a group of what, 20 or 30 of us. So you're saying um, Peace Corps didn't factor in early on. It wasn't something where you kind of grew up and said, you know what, this Peace Corps thing, I'm definitely going to do that. But, but did travel abroad factor in? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The whole idea of just visiting. I mean, I, I love to just sort of go to a new place and just walk around and observe and see and, you know, you know, no particular agenda. Yeah. So that was the fascinating piece. I've said before, Peace Corps for me solved, I, I, I did have like the five-year plan, even though I'm not an engineer and it included international travel for more than a year and it included language acquisition. Yes. And it also included living in California and getting a master's degree, like in the, in the years between 20 and 25. Mm -hmm. And I found out that there was a master's international program through Peace Corps where I could do a year of master's in grad school. I could go to Peace Corps for two years, become fluent in the language, live abroad for two years and come back and finish my grad degree in California 
I solved for four of the five things on my next five years plan <laughs> in one fail swoop. <laughs> that actually is kind of like the story of my life. I, I constantly wait until I find the thing that will solve the most of my desires in one, uh, in one soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I wish that program, I would have taken that. <sighs> yeah. A lot of our, our colleagues have been through the master's international program now. It's in a fan, it is a fantastic option. I'll tell you, I would not recommend someone go do the one that I did and that several of our friends did that's kind of Peace Corps in the middle of your grad degree. I think it's a terrible idea unless your entire desire is to work in international development and then it's a right. great practicum, right? Mm-hmm. It's a terrible idea to break up an MBA, right? but it gave me a lot of on the ground practical experience that I can truly say to created who I am and why I care about the environment. If anybody hasn't listened to the episode that I did, uh, I replayed it from my friend Lee, his podcast, The Climate Champions. I get deep into that story, so we don't need to go into it here, but I think it was episode 502, I want to say, 502 or 503, that we published um, The Climate Champions replay. I ask these questions because, Adrian, I want to understand a bit of how you thought about cultivating the person that you were becoming and how you ultimately became aware that climate action was going to be a part of your narrative and that maybe even the energy sector was going to play a role in it. So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah. So certainly when you see people who are living closer to the earth, they have fewer things. You realize how much we have and how, how we just don't really appreciate all of it. So coming back, I also did went and got an MBA and then I worked for a startup that was, uh, had an environmental technology product uh, in the Boston area. They were recycling hazardous waste using a molten metal bath, which was incredibly ambitious and a bit on the expensive side. I can tell how, <laughs> how steeped in product management and marketing you've been because you, 20 years later, can tell me the, the value proposition of that product. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> That's so good. It's a lesson right there and like how to do it. <laughs> so then uh, from there, I was doing environmental technology products in the semiconductor industry. And then I sometimes call it a little bit of the, the darker years. I spent a lot of business formation in the semiconductor industry, learning how organizations work, how they grow, how they, like you said, do product marketing, do applications. How do you take a technology and scale it? And then decided I had to be a little bit more deliberate in my focus and decided to go and leave computers and go back into uh, a clean tech environment. And that was when I landed with a job in Sun Edison in renewable energy. For all the opportunities you could have had to land at the time that you did at Sun Edison is, uh, is remarkable, right? So the time frame for folks that want to sort of tie to this is, you know, mid nineties to mid teens. So you know, 18 ish years, you're in the semiconductor industry, global marketing director for Edwards vacuum business development for Edwards uh, in their energy savings programs, and then get your MBA and you come out at what was kind of literally the peak of Sun Edison glory, right? Circa 2015, they had moved their headquarters to, to Belmont. They had research and skunk works projects out the wazoo, not in any small part because they had merged with and then sort of taken over MEMC, right? And I mean, not taken over, Machatilla, the, the, the then CEO of MEMC said, this is the new vehicle. This is the energy company of the future. And right. I liken, and I think history will <laughs> as well, although there wasn't any sort of catastrophic thing other than believing yield codes were a thing uh, that needed to happen for solar. I liken Sun Edison to like, the you know 20 years uh, later example or 15 years later example of Enron, right? A company way ahead of its time. Given your 20 years experience in product marketing, in deep understanding of market research, what did you see in Sun Edison that excited you? And also, I'd love to hear if there are things that scared you, like even from the beginning, you're like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Now, I, when I took the job, I said to my husband, either this company is going to take over the world or they're going to yeah. crash and burn in a most spectacular mm-hmm. fashion. But, you know, they were, like you said, they were doing some incredible things. I came on board um, to commercialize one of their products. They really didn't have the infrastructure to do a commercially focused product. So then I moved over and worked on a project where they were looking at 
monitoring their 1800 renewable energy sites globally. So we're talking everything from technology that they had developed themselves to Mm -hmm. things that they had acquired. This is the division, sorry, that they acquired Cedric's business, right? Cedric Brejo and there, that's when they started creating the knock and- Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I was a little bit, so the knock had been created and now they wanted to aggregate it all so that they oh, could actually right. systematize it for their asset managers, for their mm-hmm. operators. And you had everything from, you know, data flowing in from all these different sources to people calling up folks in India on the phone and asking them to go look at the meter to give them a number, right? So it was all over the place. And we were putting together you know, the different stakeholders, the different use cases, who were the people that were going to be using that data within the company, who was going to use it externally, how is it all going to be normalized and rolled up into one, you know, great big package that you could then use analysis. They were moving their physical servers to the cloud. So it was this whole innovation that was going on on this process. And they were very cutting edge with what they were doing. But, you know, it was if, you know, we were two weeks before launching MVP and they filed for bankruptcy. And so while the project was fully laid out and we had a clear path to success, we didn't get to implement, unfortunately. You know, there are a lot of folks right now that maybe they're coming into our industry and there are a lot of immature companies, frankly, that have scaled because um, people are willing to throw good money after bad. They're also willing to throw good money after good. And there's just companies growing so fast to have not enough professional formation because those entrepreneurs or even senior team members didn't come through any sort of like global product marketing internship at Procter and Gamble or Xerox, right? Right. What with your sort of the level of acumen you brought from the semiconductor space, what did you see then and even now as immature product marketing mistakes and how did you start to correct them internally at Sun Edison and even in maybe you can speak about ongoing companies because you then worked at a company that everybody knows, Iron Ridge. It's following the full connectivity, right? You can have an idea, you can have, yeah, let's do this as a product. But if you don't have the organizational structure in place to support that and the market structure isn't there, I think we sometimes have a difficult time understanding what is actually innovative and where we can pull from lessons learned in order to make sure that we can scale and actually nail the implementation. There are so many things that are new. And if everything that you're doing is new, it's just really difficult to make it work and have it come out. And so, you know, Sun Edison had, of course, they had done the whole new bid on financing and there ends up being sometimes within companies, oh, well, we know how to do this. And we, you know, and so they ignore and they don't leverage the expertise that's out there. And if this industry is going to mature and you know, deliver what it needs to over, over the next three, five, 10 years. I mean, we have to leverage models that have proven themselves. We can't go and reinvent everything. It's just not going to work. You see that in, in some cases, really trying to understand what the core competency and, and stick to that. There's so many opportunities in renewable energy that, we have a tendency to get distracted pretty easily and want to innovate on multiple fronts at the same time. Yeah. And build products that nobody's asking for yet. Yes. (laughs) I'd love to know if there are any specific examples you might give of frameworks or models that, that you leverage and that you have seen work before that worked again at Sun Edison and Iron Ridge and New Sun Road that you have gone back to time and time again as you said frameworks that I don't have to go and, and make up on my own. They've existed in other industries. Yeah, I think, you know, using a framework, there are plenty of things out there for product development and business management, but then taking that framework and overlaying it on the reality of the market sector that you are in and what you're trying to do and calling out the gaps and then going and figuring out how are you going to fill in those gaps? Either maybe it's a knowledge gap, maybe it's a market gap. Sometimes sometimes the market, like you said, just isn't ready. So there's an educational component that needs to happen in order to, to pave the way. Sometimes it's a framing. I mean, you, you'd mentioned early on in the conversation about microgrids. There's microgrids, there's mini grids, there's nano grids, there's standalone power systems. There's all these different names for basically a system that's got 
controls for a power supply, some kind of storage and some kind of load. But are we all talking about the same thing? Or are we talking about different things? So, you know, as usual, the devil's in the details, right? There are what are commonly called mental models, like Occam's razor is a mental model, right? It's just a way to think about a problem. And what I'm looking for here is, is if you specifically in, intentionally use some model around creating a value proposition or um, writing a market requirements document, th- those kinds of things, those like actual tactical examples, that even if somebody, you don't dive into the detail of it, somebody can go back and pause and be like, wait, I got to go research that, right? That would be helpful for those who are trying to look at the, at the 10 foot level for their action plan for the day. And, and rather than think at like a CMO level about the, the, philosoph- the philosophy of it. Is there anything like that that you'd want to contribute? To be honest, Nico, I mean, I will look at them, you know, I will be like best practices for, you know, a business case or best practices for putting together a financial deck, get an outline and then modify it from there. I do not have a particular model, but Google is amazing, right? I mean, you know, if you, it is amazing if you just ask the question, what sort of comes up and starting from something that somebody has already did, just not only gives you common ground a lot of times with people, but it starts to look very familiar and, and and move it forward. So I don't have something that I can be like, oh, I like this particular business guy or, you know, I, I follow, you know, I've been, I read a lot and stuff like that, but I, I can't say that there is one particular model that I follow. It's. You're probably very much like me. It's like, what was that thing that Michael Porter talked about? <laughs> I'm going to search right. the Porter model. And then I'm like, shit, that's right. That would be super helpful. But also uh, I have bookmarks on bookmarks on bookmarks of bookmark groups that I'll refer back to. And I sort of have my, my external brain and Evernote. It always surprises me now that I've built this eco, this like sort of tagging ecosystem as it were, which is sort of half, half Dropbox folders of templates and half like Evernote notes and half um, Google or Chrome uh, bookmarks. I'll go back to the same tools, right? I've got this huge repository, like I've got the, the Library of Congress and I'll go back to the one <laughs> encyclopedia that always helps me. There's one resource that I haven't used in a while. For those of you that are thinking about how to put slide decks together, there's this guy who built a remarkable business. He's Costa Rican. So I love to promote his business because he's such a great entrepreneur. And I can't remember his name, but he is, he is in my opinion, the best CEO in the tech business of being a product manager advocate, like creating all of the demo videos in a way that speaks to how, who his, our avatar is, which is the CEO or CTO of a company that's trying to get funding, right? And the, the business is called Slide Bean. And for those of you marketers out there that are trying to think through, how do I put this deck together? Slide Bean's got that deck. They've got the Airbnb deck. They've got all the pitch decks. They've got all the marketing decks, all the brand value decks, all that stuff, right? To Adrian's point, Oftentimes the person that walks into a business like this and has those tools at a moment's notice, like can actually go find them becomes the person that leads the initiative because you're more organized than the other people around you. And you can come in with like one step ahead of them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I find that oftentimes it's not the person that's the smartest in the room around a specific topic, but the person that is the best at aggregating resources that becomes uh, the leader of an initiative and I don't know if that's always true, but you, you left Sun Edison, you know, as you said, famously did not take over the world, but, but, uh, but crashed and burned famously. How did you end up at Iron Ridge and what did you learn about product marketing at Iron Ridge that serves you now in the, in particular in the renewable sector where you are a service provider to other like project builders and developers? When I left Sun Edison, I did a little bit of work in sustainability, um, looking at supply chain sustainability. Mm -hmm. And then I also did a little bit of work for the Clean Coalition, which is where I became introduced to microgrids, then took a a product marketing role at Iron Ridge and then became the head of product management for Iron Ridge. And so when I look at those two functions, product marketing is, I kind of see it as sort of this funnel pulling in all of the information, sifting through what is pertinent and then pulling those market requirements together and reflecting them back into the organization and then taking the organization's information and pushing that out into the marketplace 
in a structure that the customers and the users can understand, right? So that they don't get, you know, they, they don't care about all the tech speak. They don't really care what protocols you're using. They just want to know if it's going to work on their roof and how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost. And then on the product management side, they're facing in the other direction and they're pulling in the information from the product marketing person and disseminating it out to what does this mean from an engineering planning perspective, a product design perspective, a research perspective. And then what does that also mean for operations scale and how are you going to actually serve that particular market? And so I see these two roles as sort of back to back. And I started in one, ended up continuing to do that one, but then moved more internally to to do the product management piece for Iron Ridge. So some of the pitfalls that, you know, companies run into is, you know, you develop an expertise and you feel like you are the experts and you stop listening to the market and you stop listening to the customers. And you're now more worried about scale. You're serving different things. And so how do you mature and scale the company without losing that customer focus and making sure that you've spent a lot of time talking about trust and keeping promises. And even on the product side, those things need to happen and make sure that you're doing all of the diligence that you need to do. I mean, one of the things we often struggled with was how long it actually took a product to go from concept to get it out into the marketplace. But if you want to make sure that that product is going to be robust and is going to serve the customer and be cost effective so that you have, you know, your manufacturing set up and reliable, it takes time. And being willing to invest that time, making sure that you don't cut corners and that you can, that the the functional experts within your organization bring their expertise to bear and you all collaborate together, do as much as you can in parallel with good communication. But, you know, for people who say, well, we're going to do this product and it's only going to take us three months, you know, unless you're doing something really different, it's very hard to do that, particularly with hardware. Software is a different thing. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Adrian, I know that you're a person of many interests and I'm fascinated just to have a dialogue with you about how your career evolved and the things that you've learned. One of the things I usually try to find out early in getting to know someone is what do you geek out about? What do you try to know more than more than the average bear about? It's ideally something that you find yourself explaining to others. 
even at dinner parties, right? The thing that you can't, like, you can't help it. You just want to know more about how this happens and how the world works around it. You know, for me, it is about the intricacies of complex systems. So I do find myself at barbecues and dinner parties, either biting my tongue because somebody says, oh, solar, it's kind of ugly. I'm like, oh boy. (laughs) But also just, you know, at a very granular level, most people don't really think about where their electricity comes from. I am kind of the local go-to person for when people want to put solar on their roof. And I'm like, yeah, I'll help you through it and walk you through it and all of that. But what I really like to geek out about is how all of those pieces fit together. Towns have opportunities to provide energy efficient refrigerators. Now, how does that Mm -hmm. fit in with their net metering? How does that fit in with their longer term sustainability goals? Why does that make sense? Some of the structures that California has tried to do on the utility Mm -hmm. side, some of them very successful, some of them not so successful. But those intricacies and just realizing the depth that people have to go into studying the impact of, of different things and how they affect other pieces is that holistic approach is something that I, I tend to geek out about and I, you know, keep asking questions and asking questions. Well, if we do this, then what happens over there? And so those are, I don't really have one specific answer. I mean, some people say, oh, I love software or I love hardware. For me, I, you know, it sounds really mundane and it's the term that I've heard people use that, you know, I'm a generalist. But it is really more than than that. It's the connectivity between all of those things and how they affect mm-hmm. each other. I'm going to make a slight uh, tangential pivot off the word connectivity because uh, a lot of t- the the world's energy systems are disconnected in, in very literal ways. Uh, what we call microgrids or mini grids. We talked a little about the time you were tasked with figuring out how to access, monitor, measure 1,800 different assets around the world for Sun Edison. I find it really intriguing that you almost are full circle now with New Sun Road. Could you talk a bit about the nature of microgrids and mini grids? What's hard about them and how you found yourself at a company that is trying to solve that problem at a very local level? So we talked a little bit about microgrids and mini grids and sort of what they comprise. They have been around for decades, right? The space station runs on a microgrid. The telescopes run on microgrids. Many of our military bases and critical infrastructure have microgrids to provide resilience and independent power. But these are systems that tend to be relatively complex and they tend to be singular in focus. What New Sun Road was doing is looking at what they call energy access microgrids. These are smaller systems about the size of what we put on a house here in the U.S., which is about six to eight kW or even less. Add some storage, add some people who, you know, want to run some computers, some cell phones. Maybe they've got a milling machine, a couple of sewing machines. You now have a microgrid situation. And many of these places are very remote. The first project that New Sun Road did was an energy access project The project was in Uganda. It was on an island in Lake Victoria, a fishing village called Kitobo. And so you've dropped the equipment off. It's up and running and you go away. And a week later, how do you know if it's still running? I mean, do you call somebody up and ask them if the lights are on? Do you? 2014 Sun Edison. That's right. That's right. So what the founders of New Sun Road did was they also developed the software and a control gateway so that they could support the system post-installation, see the operations, monitor what was going on and not have to fly back to Uganda. And even if they were in Uganda, it's very hard to get to. So there's been a lot of technology evolution. Solar systems here and residential solar have been monitored also for decades, but nobody's really done very much with the monitoring, right? It's kind of a piece of software that the homeowner can look at and say like, oh yeah, I'm generating electricity. It's not been in a way that you can do any control or that you can do a lot of data mining with. Now, if you have microgrids that are in a variety of locations and you can now control them remotely and you can also collect the data, 
with the decrease in cost for much of the equipment now that's out there in batteries and electronics and all of the stuff which is becoming more accessible, you now have a cost imperative that allows you to do this more cost-effectively and to scale smaller systems in remote locations. And this is sort of the core of many of the projects that we've been working on. You can do it for telecommunications, where you have towers and places that are on tops of mountains or in the desert where there's just not a lot of people. If those things are off-grid right now, most of them use generators. You still have to get the fuel out there. You still don't really know what the status is. So with what New Sun Road has put together, you can see what's happening. You can collect the data. You can look at reliability and you can make continuous improvement. You know, it's fascinating. There are hundreds of companies operating, uh, I would say, relatively at scale. I understand that you guys have um, more than 700 systems deployed on microgrids worldwide, monitoring them and providing this kind of data. And yet it's a company that I'd never heard of until you got uh, hired on board. Can you tell me a bit about the the three founders, young guys from Berkeley who had a vision for not only that this should exist, but how to bring it to the more to the market. Yeah. So the three founders, Joel Sager, um, Austin Capon, and uh, Jonathan Lee, they met at Berkeley in a grad school program, and uh, this was one of their projects. They have a passion for energy access and for impact. So it wasn't just about delivering energy, but it was making sure that the energy was reliable and productive and could be sustained. Mm-hmm. And the three of them have a variety of expertise. They bring the software piece, the networking piece, the power systems piece all into one package. When you're pushing data up into the cloud, you need to have good connectivity. So the network needs to be there as well, which means you can also now bring in internet connectivity to that particular community. And we're doing that with some of our projects as well. And so the early projects were around energy access in Africa. The next projects were around telecommunications in Latin America. And then we started doing digital community centers in Guatemala with funding from Microsoft. So, you know, we continue to focus on the core technology and offer it to many different customers that are out there. But we our our heart is still in those impact projects and our head is still mm-hmm. in developing that the technology and moving it forward and making it accessible for for whatever company can can use it. I have a special place for Guatemala as I was a Peace Corps volunteer there. Uh, so like, I want to come back to the digital community centers for folks that maybe heard you and they want to hear more about that. We'll come back to it in a minute. What's fascinating about the product itself is that you don't just have customers now in Africa and Latin America. They're not just remote systems off grid, but you're also back working in California. I'd like to hear from a product management perspective, your observations about the evolution of the product itself and how it became evident that you'd created a product that had been honed as a technology in emerging, emerging markets like techno, but like Tanzania, and you could now utilize it in developed markets as well. Yeah. Like a lot of things, it's timing. So the technology is uh, acting as an energy management and a battery management system in uh, some OEM products or it's embedded. And then we've also been working with an EPC box power. And they were the ones who first were looking at providing off-grid microgrids or standalone power systems for the utilities here in California, who are looking at providing power to rural communities while at the same time mitigating wildfire risk. The pilot project, which is in Briceburg, which is the foothills of the Sierras, the transmission line was incinerated about three or four years ago in one of the previous wildfires. And so to provide power, you can rerun the transmission line for several miles through very rugged mountainous territory, or you can look at other alternatives. Now, the maturation of what we were doing, the proof of concept, you know, PG&E has a very focused program on what they're going to do in the wildfire regions. And so they are looking at standalone power systems to provide power to communities where either they can remove the transmission line or doing the public 
emergency, uh, the public safety shutoffs where they cut the power, these communities can still have local power while the power is not on the transmission lines, which would create a risk in these areas during a, um, you know, high heat and high wind sort of events. And so, yeah, so, uh, so the, the technology really fundamentally didn't change. It was just understanding the situation and the application. And of course, you know, there's other things, the definitely PG&E and the other utilities, they're going to take us in directions and really make sure that the cybersecurity and many of the other things that are, um, that are necessary for public safety are a hundred percent where they need to be and continue to be as the, as the projects move forward. But the fundamentals were the same and what New Sun Road brought to the table, which was unique because we were competing against some, you know, some very well-known names out in the industry was this whole idea of having a remote system and being able to get all of that information uh, through a cloud-based software tool. You mentioned that probably recognizable OEMs rely on the software. What is it that they rely on New Sun Road for? So if you think about an equipment manufacturer, right, you're making batteries and now you have to have a controller and you need to have the software. There are different layers, right? There's the software to control the battery. There's the software that then interfaces with the, with the inverter. And so what we've been doing is we're providing the embedded controller for the battery management system and the energy management system for Blue Planet and for the new Simplify product. So our fundamental technology is embedded and allows them to take advantage of sort of cutting edge technology, get faster to market while focusing on their core technology and making sure that their customers have the best experience with their product. I'm going to ask uh, what's probably a dumb question for some folks listening, but what, what does the controller do? I'm not sure I really understand that. <laughs> the controller... So there's multiple controllers, right? Because it, there's different things. So when you talk about the battery controller or the BMS, they're controlling state of charge. And this is a hardware piece or it's software? So the controller itself is typically a piece of hardware and electronics. And then the software is often firmware, which is on the controller. And then you have software that sits on top of it, which d- then manages the operations. Got it. Okay. So as a technology company, you have both hardware and, and software. Correct. We have, a, we have an edge controller, which is an Internet of Things device that pulls in the data from all of the different systems. So one of the unique things about New Sun Road, and which was what Sun Edison was struggling with, is you know if you stay within a particular system, those pieces will talk to each other. So a GE system will talk to another piece of GE hardware. But now I want to add a different system. I don't always want to be GE. I want to use SMA. I want to use Schneider. I want to use somebody else. I want to pull in a sensor because now I want to see what the temperature is. What New Sun Road does is it allows you to take data from multiple different OEMs, different types of hardware, aggregates that data, normalizes it so that you can now see it all on a level playing field. It's almost like an internal operating system. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that we do is we allow you to do fleets of systems. Most of these Mm -hmm. systems will operate for one microgrid. Yeah. You can have a hundred, you can have 200, you can have a thousand small systems out there and you can all see it on one platform. So this is something that like a Kingo down in Guatemala would want to, would want to utilize. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Fascinating. Adrian, one of the things that I'm struggling with right now from a, a business architecture perspective is I think that the founders of New Sun Road have done something that is truly remarkable. It's extremely difficult to extricate yourself from an, a foregone conclusion around your business model where you are servicing these rural communities and you're um, making life easier for them. You're creating hardware and software that controls these systems to actually say, wait a minute, we've now incubated and build a product that could have a much higher and better use for OEMs, uh, which are asking us for it. Is there like a, a brief version of the moment where they realized, oh, we don't like, we have a bigger mission and, and purpose to serve than simply, which is not simply, I don't, I don't mean to downgrade the original body of work, but like 
where it sounds like New Sun Road is going as a company is it requires sort of a reprogramming, I think, of the, of the entrepreneur founder team to say, wait a minute, okay, we need to expand our vision here and pull back and bring in professional people like Adrienne to help us commercialize this product because it's becoming a, a, a different product. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good framing. There's, there's two aspects to New Sun Road's growth. I mean, the first one is we have deep partnerships and we grow based on the adjacency of those partnerships. We become mm-hmm. core to people's business operations. And so there's a deep sense of trust and alignment in what we're doing with them. And so, you know, moving into telecom, which then extended into the partnership with Microsoft, which then introduced us to Blue Planet, which then, mm-hmm. you know, introduced us to Box Power, which then got us to the utilities. So even though this business is booming, it's still a pretty small community. And so our growth has been through that that adjacency and that development. And now just sort of reflecting, I think what you intuitively have picked up on, you know, it is how do we how do we leverage that and scale that? Mm-hmm. The technology is ready. The market is ready. The opportunity is here. And we've done all of this development work. We have this proof of concept and we have, you know, a variety of examples and, and, and business imperatives. So now let's replicate, take the cost out and really allow microgrids and renewable energy to kind of fill in those gaps that we mm-hmm. so desperately need. So how do you do that? How do you think about Getting from, uh, I, first of all, I love that you just gave the walkthrough that very few people do that, that we understand as professional commercialization experts of it takes deep entrenched relationships for Microsoft to recommend you. And think about the relationship management that's happening at Microsoft where they say, this company can help Blue Planet, this other company that we're working with. And we both, we want to see both of them succeed One's not going to replace the other, going to help each other. And then Blue Planet to have the same realization that Microsoft did and introduced you to Box Power, which brought you into a whole other realm of business, right? Um, I love to unpack that for folks because it does come back to something we've said uh, in prior episodes. I remember the one that we published uh, with Brad Davis and Mark Liffman from Omnidian, right? Where they talk about the product that we're selling is trust. You know, they, and they similarly focus on uh, identifying proactively addressing issues, right? And that's something that I see as an increasing need in the industry is a company like New Sun Road that can develop a platform and the deep relationships to solve problems and have that network of relationships spiral out to recommend that product to folks that need the problem, their problem solved. And it's one thing to have solar on your roof and be connected to the grid. And if the solar fails you can still turn on your TV. It's another thing to be remotely operating. And if the, if the, you know, you don't have data or your system fails, you don't, you're, you don't have that many options, right? So that trust factor that you're talking about and that you've, you've been alluding to, you know, is, it is foundational for what we do. And I think what the, you know, what the industry needs to make sure that we continue to police each other and hold each other accountable. Otherwise it's business as usual. And that's how we got here in the first place. How was all of this funded? How did these guys out of uh, undergrad at Berkeley pull this thing off? You know, um, we have some private investors. Uh, we've had some monetary support and, uh, fin- you know, um, technical support from Microsoft. They've bootstrapped a lot of it. And, you know, you you do good work and there's need in a sound business model. You know, you, you scrape and claw your way forward. And uh, they've done a really good job of pulling all those pieces together. Do you know how the Microsoft relationship was formed? We did a digital community center in the southern part of Guatemala, and Microsoft has a program called Airband, which is to try to close the digital divide globally. And they heard about the project and really liked the idea of marrying clean energy with internet access in a program that was going to do more than just drop off equipment. So these community centers are 
sponsored by the community. They're women-led uh, groups that are managing the centers. And then the centers are providing services. Some of them are connected to schools. Some of them are connected to issues in telemedicine. And so from there, our relationship with Microsoft grew on the impact side, but also it grew on the technology side. You know, we're using Azure as the as the cloud-based platform, and they also provided uh, some technical assistance in developing the edge-based software and offered some of their expertise in that area. So, yeah, our relationship with them goes back half a decade at this point, and um, we're super appreciative of their support. Uh, and the fact that they've been able to, you know, we talked about very early on in our conversation about bringing in expertise and paradigms and models from other areas and other businesses. I mean, I think this is something that New Sun Road has done really, really well. And Microsoft and the partnership there is a good example of it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't help but wonder, right? Like there's a, there's a lot to be said for location and connection network, right? The Berkeley network being in the Bay Area certainly affords them access and opportunity that probably if they had uh, nurtured this technology out of uh, Iowa state, just to pick one, <laughs> yeah. might not, it might not have happened the same way. Would have been right? harder. Yeah. A bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you guys are, you guys are about to go through a big um, scale up of the technology. Uh, do you want to talk at all about how that's going to be funded? Um, yeah, we are raising funds now and, you know, we, we are pretty close to break even in and of itself where we are, but we just feel like there's such an opportunity. And if we want to get in front of that opportunity and really grow the organization to take on more, then yeah. having additional funds is really going to be important to make that happen. And that's like venture, venture backed scale. Yeah, or we're looking for a series A. For a company like Newsun, is that going to have some sort of a strategic investor lead or is it just purely VC? Find a, find a good VC and they and they bring folks along. I mean, we are such a mission focused company, right? We're a public benefit corporation that I do think that there needs to be some strategic alignment. I think just mm-hmm. having a VC venture back company would be a bit uncomfortable for both of us. So, so we'll see, we'll see, you know, yeah. but there's so many angles, right? Is it, is it digital access? Is it energy access? What part of the, is it grid modernization, right? There's so many different things that we, that we touch on and uh, that partner providing us some sort of some assistance and, and opening up some additional markets would be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I can't help, but think that it's gotta be, it's going to be a company like, um, you know, Breakthrough or someone like that, that's connected with Microsoft and other tech companies that, is going to provide a lot of, uh, of access. They're going to open up doors. I mean, that's one of the main reasons why a company would go to a series A, um, as right. opposed to taking on debt when you're near break, free, break, uh, break even. So, um, wish you luck in that. Adrian, I wonder, is there anything that you would reflect on that for you stands out as like a key lesson in your career that you'd pass along to folks that are coming along behind you? Maybe they're in product marketing and product management, and they're looking at you thinking, man, one day I hope to be able to become a chief uh, commercial officer at a company that is on its way to you know success, uh, a successful scale up. For me, it's always been have a sense of curiosity, ask lots of questions, use the team members that are around you and your colleagues and your supporters and try things. I stayed at Edwards for quite a while. It was 19 years, but you know, my job and my role changed every two to three years. So I was constantly learning. And as long as you enjoy what you're doing and you find meaning in in the work that you, you know, you'll, you'll naturally move forward. I think sometimes we get too focused on, well, why am I doing this? And what's it mean to me? And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just need to try stuff, right? Like, I never really wanted to do sales was not the thing. I was not going to do sales. I can't do sales. But for partnership and sort of working on solutions and solving a customer's problem, you know, I really enjoy it. And I I think, I hope my customers get a benefit out of that too, right? I think that they do. Adrian, to put a pin in it, I'd love to hear how the business that you're in now, New Sun Road, serves as somehow, you know, it serves at the center of your calling and it's a good, and it's the fit that's right for where you're at in, in your career now. I mean, for me, New Sun Road is the intersectionality of, you know, technology, international impact, delivering a customer solution, 
clean energy environment. I mean, for, you know, for me personally, it is, uh, the perfect storm of many, many things that I've done. And, um, I don't know, I've, I've been doing it for a year and it's incredibly satisfying and super excited to keep doing it. So I just, I'm, I'm not one who is like, Oh, I love my job. This is great. But in this particular case, I can say that. Adrian, as we wrap here, I want to make sure I touch on a couple of things that we always usually try to tease out in the conversation. I believe that leaders are readers and sometimes that means listening to or reading books. Sometimes it means something else, but I'd love to know how, how do you sharpen the saw? What particularly uh, in the realm of books uh, has been useful for you that you might recommend to other listeners of Suncast? Uh, gosh, I read a lot, but I must admit it is very eclectic in terms of, um, I just finished reading a book about the importance of humor in business. Um, oh, cool. What's that called? Oh gosh. Can I, can I email it to you? <laughs> I don't know it off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, email it to me and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Because I do think, you know, we work hard and we care yeah. about what we do. And, but we also need to remember that, you know, it's, you know, in order to laugh together, we trust, we have to trust one another and you have to communicate. And so I think that humor and um, having that in the business context is something that uh, is important. So, so anyway, so I just finished a, a book on that. And then I do like historical fiction. Any in particular that stands out that you've shared before? Well, I read a really interesting book called Why Fish Don't Exist, which I would recommend. Uh, wow. It is a story of David Starr Jordan, who was the first president of the University of Stanford, of Stanford University. And uh, it's a Lulu little bit- Miller. Yes. It's a okay. little bit autobiographical, a little introspective, and also just talks a lot about um, sort of- the technical patriarchy and a lot of hubris. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, I can't wait to, to check that out. Uh, do you have a particular morning or evening routine that primes you for the day uh, or the day ahead? Or, or is there another similar consistent habit that you engage in that really gives you impact or leverage in your life? I mean, I think it's important to have balance, um, you know, make sure that you get some exercise in. Um, I meditate a few times a week, but I also often have very early morning calls because I'm talking to folks in Africa and in Europe. So I have to make sure that uh, those get fit in through the day so that you're flexible. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, they talk about work-life balance. I think it's important to kind of know what your boundaries are and know when to take a time out. Um, so you always true. find that when you come back, you end up coming back stronger. Great reminder for those of us that tend to not uh, balance as often. I think that the pendulum is always swinging one way or the other. It's very rarely right in the middle in that balance section. I like to follow a model from uh, that I got a long time ago in um, the book, The One Thing, which is I recommend a lot uh, here on the show. Have you read it? Mm -mm. No, I'll no. definitely look it up. Uh, well, I'll save you the time. It's a great read if you have the time, but Gary Keller, who founded Keller Williams and Jay Papasan, who they together have written a number of books, in including they've um, they've got a podcast that is a CEO podcast that one of my clients turned me on to that is fantastic. It's literally just their advice to realtors at Keller Williams, but it is, it is enduring wisdom. And the thesis of the book, The One Thing, uh, there's two points here. The thesis is, what well, one thing could I be doing right now that by doing it would make all other things easier or unnecessary, right? What a great filter, you know? And the other, which is a mental model for that, from that book that I've carried with me, he says, look, if you imagine life as juggling balls, apropos, we often use that analogy in business, then you can imagine that uh, you have glass balls and rubber balls, um, spirituality, physical well-being, family, work. Let's call those the four balls. Which of those would be the glass ball, right? I would argue probably two, but in the book, he posits that family is the glass ball, right? Just don't drop that one. <laughs> far, too <laughs> many, far too many entrepreneurs drop yeah. that one yeah. and it shatters, Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Study after study have shown that it is the life you lead outside of work, the friends that you make, the family you keep that leads to longevity, not the money you make, the fame that you acquire. None of that really matters for whether or not you live to 100 
and have an impact in the world uh, unless in fact you're Steve Jobs and can live to 50 something and have an impact in the world that will endure for probably centuries. So all that in context is to say what one thing, uh, that question, what one thing you'd be doing makes all things easier or unnecessary. And in balance, how do you keep it from shattering your, your, your personal connections in the doing of it? And I would, I would also postulate that those balls, sometimes they change substance, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you may, you may be in a position where this particular one needs to be treated like glass for a period of time and being able to recognize that is, you know, is important, right? That's a really nuanced response and I love it. (laughs) I have not, I've actually not, uh, not, I've not had that response or, or sort of perspective on it. Uh, yet. And I appreciate it. That's really good to think about. Adrian, where do you like to be found? I know you and I direct message a lot on LinkedIn, including when I'm late to the interview and I tell you so on LinkedIn messenger, not on email or anything else. Where do you like to be found? Um, you can reach me my, you know, via email with work, which is a pierce at newsonroad.com. Um, you can reach me through LinkedIn. I, you know, I'm, people will tell you I'm incredibly responsive and, uh, love to even just have an exploratory conversation. So yeah. Thank you. Well, let's end today as we always do with a bold prediction. I'd love to hear what corners you might be looking around. What do you see happening in your crystal ball that maybe nobody else is tracking out in the marketplace as it evolves? Kind of look out over the next 18 to 24 months and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So if I just kind of narrow the focus around sort of clean energy in our conversation, Mm -hmm. I really think that microgrids and EVs are going to have a natural partnership by providing mm. clean energy in locations to enable that that particular infrastructure growth. And, you know, EVs are batteries on wheels, as people talk about. Uh, so they will require uh, additional controls and insights into what's going on. And we do need more clean energy to power them. And so by having the flexibility of a microgrid, we can deliver more EVs and have a cleaner solution that hopefully will serve the many masters that we've uh, defined for yeah. our modern society. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and I'll, we'll, we'll, we won't be able to dive into this, but something occurred to me because uh, I've heard a lot of conversations around how EVs are going to form part of the microgrid of the future that gives resilience to an area. but one of the, one of the, I think, failure points in the argument right now is let's just think about like Hurricane Katrina in the Southwest, Southeast, a lot of hurricanes, right? Mm-hmm. When the grid most needs those EVs, they may have already fled to, to Texas mm-hmm. or New York mm-hmm. uh, to get away from the natural disaster. What do we do in that environment? <laughs> right. That's like, I totally agree with you. And I think that we may be setting ourselves up for this unexpected scenario where those Batteries on wheels are not where we thought they'd be when we needed them to supply resiliency and backup. <laughs> That's a really interesting, uh, I hadn't really used it in, in that context, but that is a really interesting point. Or you could do something like um, the uh, the Footprint Project where they have mobile right. microgrids on wheels, mm-hmm. right? I don't yep. know if you're familiar with them or I not. I am. Yeah, they did yeah. a lot of uh, work last year in New Orleans when the hurricane yep. came through. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Adrian, so many more things for us to talk about on our next interview for this this one though i want to thank you adrian pierce is the chief commercial officer at new sun road public benefit corporation uh making lots of good in the world adrian a pleasure to meet a fellow return peace corps volunteer look forward to seeing you in the real world at some point in the future thanks for joining us on suncast thank you so much nico it was great to talk with you all right solar warrior well i really truly enjoyed the conversation with Adrian. Adrian, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Could only imagine how much busier it has become now as the chief executive officer for New Sun Road. Congratulations again for taking on that exciting, arduous new role. Please let us know how we can help you. You as well, listener, let us know how did this episode land for you? What did you learn from Adrian that you're going to apply to your own work. If you would, take a moment and find us on LinkedIn. Of course, you can find the resources from this episode, the highlights from this discussion, timestamps, social media links, book recommendations, and more over at mysuncast.com. Click on the episodes link 
we will have linked in our LinkedIn post to all of the other ways that you could connect with Adrian. So go drop a comment there on LinkedIn. And while you're hopping online and feeling extra generous in your actions, I would ask you to go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. Leave us your enthusiastic five-star rating and review. Join more than 100 others who have done the same. Thank you because it does help others just like you find content like this that will help them increase their influence, their interest, their understanding of the sector, and of course, your income. I'd like to lastly ask that if you have been searching for that community that will help you grow, thrive in your career, grow your business, help you raise money. Yeah, even raise money. You could look no further than Resource Labs. That is our thriving community where our home is Discord, but we have so many other ways to enrich your life. You could find out more at mysuncast.com forward slash community. I'd like to thank once again our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also how you could learn ways to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warrior and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Hope that you are having a wonderful end to what has been a quite interesting, dare I say, remarkable year. Certainly, as we look forward to 2023, I look forward to bringing you more content just like this and welcoming you into our community. Hope I get to see you at some point in the not too distant future in real life. Look me up. Let's connect. In the meantime, remember you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Merry Christmas and have a wonderful rest of the year.